You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. You'll remain standing. Turn to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, while you're finding your place, um, as they were singing that song, I'll share this with you. Oftentimes in my, in my prayer time, um, I'll try to envision in my mind what that moment looks like. The Bible describes all tribes and nations gathered around the throne of God, and I imagine God and the Godhead Trinity, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, we're all there, and we're all crying, holy, holy, holy. And I, no matter how wild your imagination is, I've never really been able to fully comprehend what that moment's going to be like. But I'll tell you this. It sure does prepare your heart for prayer. It sure does prepare your heart to spend some time alone with your king. Revelation chapter 10. Um, got some good news and some bad news. Good news is, it's Puxcatoni Field. Solid shadow. I think that means, what, six more weeks of winter or something? The bad news are not so bad news, depending on how you accept this. I saw my shadow as well. That means 15 weeks in Revelation. <laughs> so you, you weigh that out however you want to. Uh, <laughs> So um, I, I would appreciate your prayers. Uh, the text we have in front of us today and the, the next few weeks is going to be rather difficult to navigate. So pray for me. Pray for the worship team as they try to build the worship sets around this. It's a, it's a challenge. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth, it will be sweet as honey. And so I took the scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask that you would guide us in it. Father, we know that from Genesis to Revelation, that this is your inspired word to us, that you moved upon those writers, and through their experiences and your guidance and the Holy Spirit, they wrote down exactly what you wanted for us to have. So therefore, Father, from Genesis to Revelation, your word is fully inspired by you. It is your breathed out word to us. Regardless if we understand it, regardless if we can completely get our arms around it, it doesn't matter. Your word is true. Your word is your word to us. And therefore, Father, it carries with it great authority, great power. It has the ability to change a life from the inside out. It has the ability to cut like a surgeon's scalpel and cut things out of our life that need to go. It has the ability to help us to see not only what you're doing now, but Father, what you're going to be doing in the future as you pour out judgment upon this earth. So Father, while we have before us this morning a hard text for us to wrap our minds around, it doesn't lessen the reality that this is your word to us. And Father, I believe that it is a lifeline that you're throwing out for those who are drowning. So guide us in your word this morning, and may you be glorified above all. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. 
So since we've taken a break, I, I thought it would be a good idea for us to kind of go back and do a little bit of a recap and catch everybody up to where we are today in Revelation 10. So if you remember, John, the gospel writer John, is on the Isle of Patmos. And he's there because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And the Isle of Patmos is not some kind of resort. It is not some kind of beach that he's enjoying. The Isle of Patmos is a prison. It's a prison without any walls or gates or bars. It's a prison that, quite frankly, you can't escape from, even though you have the freedom to go anywhere on this island you want to. On that island, under the direction of the Roman authorities, John, in his old age, maybe, be, maybe close to 80, even 90 years old at this point in his life, is being forced to work every single day. His bed is probably, no doubt, a slab of rock, and the only thing he has to his name is the clothes on his back and maybe, just maybe, a blanket that he can use to try to stay warm. He, he's living out in the elements, and he's there simply because of his faith in Jesus. While he's on that island, an incredible thing happens in chapter 1. The King of kings and the Lord of lords reveals himself to John. John has a vision of Jesus. But the Jesus that he sees is much different than the Jesus he saw on the cross and the Jesus that he saw in the upper room. The Jesus that he sees comes with power and authority. And in chapter 1, we see all of the descriptions about the great power of this king. And of course, John falls on his face before Jesus, scared to death, scared literally for his life. And it's at that point, Jesus says to John, John, I want you to write down the things that have been the things that are, and the things that will be. John, I'm going to reveal to you the unveiling, not only of who I am, but the unveiling of all that the prophets have talked about, how that one day God will unleash wrath upon this earth. So John, I want you to write down what you experience and what you hear and what you see. So then Jesus begins to dictate, first of all, some letters to seven churches, seven real churches, in Asia Minor. And during John's day, these were seven churches that, that had started out with the focus upon the gospel. These churches had started out with a focus on what they were supposed to be about. But the majority of those churches, over time, began to, well, drift. Drift away from their mission, to kind of get, uh, well, uh, slack in their love for Jesus and their devotion for Jesus. And so Jesus writes, or has John write, the very words that he has for those seven churches. That's chapters two and three. Well, after that, John is then invited in the spirit to come up into the very throne room of God. Now, we talked about in the Old Testament, there were a few people who had a similar experience, Isaiah and Isaiah chapter six. But John's experience is much more profound than anything anybody had experienced up until that point. John is invited in the spirit up into the very throne room of God, and in that throne room, he, he sees and hears exactly what we just sung, that, that the, the tribes of the nations are singing holy, holy. The angels are singing holy, holy. He sees the elders, and he sees them bow down before Jesus, but he also sees God sitting on the throne. And in the hand of God is a scroll. And in chapter 5, there is this lament that John has because he, he sees the scroll but he's brokenhearted because no one is worthy to take the scroll. There is no one worthy that could possibly ever walk up the steps to the throne of God and take from God's hand the very scroll that God has in his hand. Who would be worthy to do that? The angels aren't worthy. None of the patriarchs of the Old Testament are worthy. So John begins to lament. And one of the elders says to John, John, look, there is one worthy. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is worthy. And John looks, and what he sees is not a lion. He sees a lamb as though it had been slain. He sees Jesus with the scars in his body of being the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And in that moment, Jesus walks up the steps to the throne where God is sitting and takes from the hand of God the scroll that he had. And Jesus begins to break those seals. John said when he saw the scroll, it had seals. It was rolled up, and there was words on the front and behind. And Jesus having the authority, because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, not only because he's the Son of God, but because he came into the world, laid down his life, became sin who knew no sin, was crucified, guilty, even though he was innocent, and resurrected three days later. He has all authority and all power 
and all things will be made his footstool. So Jesus begins to break the seals and unscroll or unroll the scroll. And there we begin to see the seal judgments. There we begin to see in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, we begin to see God unleash his power, especially in chapter 6, with these seal judgments. And what we see there is, is quite frankly, unimaginable. We don't really have much of a context for what we see. And as that seals are, the seals are broken and the scroll is unrolled, we get more and more insight into just what God is going to do when he unleashes his full wrath upon this planet. Well, then we have a break. We have kind of a, an interlude in chapter 7 where we kind of get a break between that sixth and seventh seal. And we said that the seal judgments are going to lead into the trumpet judgments, and the trumpet judgments are going to lead into the bowl judgments. So what happens is, is the seventh seal judgment will be the first trumpet judgment. And then the sixth trumpet judgment will have a pause, which we're going to look at today. And then that seventh trumpet will then turn into the bowl judgment. So if you think about it like a telescope, kind of expanding out with each section, that's what we have. Then in chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 7, and then leading into chapter 8, we have the trumpet judgments. And what we found there, and if you remember in one sermon, I kind of, with like rapid succession, went through those trumpet judgments because they're coming fast and furious. It's almost like the, the pace of God's judgment picks up a notch. And also it's in those trumpet judgments we see for the very first time a supernatural act of God. All of those judgments we've seen, of course, are supernatural. And they all kind of point back to, well, Israel being in bondage in Egypt, and we saw what God did there. And it seems very similar to that, but there was one judgment, one trumpet judgment that was different than anything else, and that's when the bottomless pit was opened. And these demonic creatures come out of the bottomless pit, and I told you that this is that one moment in all of the judgments that no one could ever possibly explain this away. That there is no way, there is nothing in history, nothing in our past that comes close to what God does and what God unleashes in that moment. And so those trumpet judgments begin to just fall and fall and fall. So where we find ourselves in chapter 10 is we find another interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Before we get to the, the bold judgments that are coming, we have this interlude. And this interlude goes from chapter 10, verse 1, all the way to chapter 11, verse 14. So we have this break. We have this, this moment that, that God kind of hits pause. Now, this doesn't mean that the suffering on earth has stopped. We are in the middle of the tribulation period. People are suffering to a tremendous degree. All of the violence and all of the crime is still, well, it's growing and growing and growing. And in the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the rise of the Antichrist and his kingdom. That is going to shock you, by the way. What's going to shock you about that is just how much things today are lining up for that moment. We'll get to that later. So we're going to see this kingdom arise. We're going to see this antichrist arise. But before we get to there, we have an interlude. Where it's like God just hits pause for a moment. Just like we saw in chapter 7. And I believe that what we see here in chapter 10 is yet again the moment of God's grace to those suffering on the planet. I think one of the things that has shocked me most about the book of Revelation every time I read it is at the same time, God is miraculously unleashing supernatural events on this earth where the people of this earth ought to be able to go, my goodness, this is God at work. At the same time that they're seeing these miraculous supernatural events, what is happening at the same time is more and more people are becoming enemies of God, not bowing the knee to him. You would imagine that when you see demons come out of a pit and torment people for months where they can't die, you would think that when we see uh, stars hitting the ocean and the ocean tsunamis hitting the sea, hitting the land and killing a third of all life, you would imagine that when you see all this, just like what we've seen in our lifetime, that when these supernatural events, weather happens, that people go, my goodness, there's a God in heaven, right? But not during this time. People become even more emboldened against God. I don't know if you've ever heard this or maybe you've read this, but or maybe some of you went through lifeguard training, and probably during that training you were told that when someone's drowning, whether it's in a pool or in the ocean, 
if you're going to go try to rescue them, you have to be very careful about how you get a hold of that person. Because what often happens, you're going out to rescue them, they're drowning, and they begin to get violent with you, not on purpose, not because they don't want to get rescued, it's because in the moment they're flailing about so bad trying to keep their face out of the water so they can breathe, and fear has overtaken them that they're just going to hit anything that gets next to them, and then when a rescuer finally does come, they wrap their arms around them and can take you to the bottom of the pool or the ocean as well. I heard one guy that was uh, trained in lifeguard, he was trained, and I don't know if this is common or not, but he said that he was trained that when he got out to the person to grab them by the hair of the head, to keep a little bit of distance and pull them by their hair until they calmed down. The fact is, is that there was a time in my life that I was drowning. And what's incredible about that was, is that my mom and dad were praying for me. There were people in the church who were sharing the gospel with me. But you know what I did? I lashed out at them. So in that moment when I was drowning, instead of grabbing onto the lifeline that was being thrown to me, what did I do? I rejected it. And I rejected it for years. I thought I knew what was best for me. I thought I had a more than enough time. I thought I could live my life the way I wanted to. So every rope that was thrown to me as a rescue, I rejected. And I rejected with quite a bit of pride and ego. Maybe you've got a family member that you've been trying to talk to about Jesus. And instead of responding with kindness to hear the, the message, man, they get angry with you. I have someone in my life like that. That if I even bring it up, they get very angry with me. It's because they're drowning. They may not even know they're drowning, or maybe they do, but they are drowning in every lifetime that is thrown to them. They reject it. And what I think is happening here in chapter 10 is that God, upon this earth, all the judgment that has been poured out, God is hitting pause and he's saying one more time, there is grace available if you'll simply, simply respond by faith and repent. You see, we have a world that is drowning. We have a world that's drowning. Our culture's drowning. And their head's going down, and they're trying to come up, and they're trying to grab onto anything they can except the gospel for many of them. And they are drowning, and, and, and when you begin to try to help that person see what the truth is, oftentimes that is met with great anger. Well, God knows exactly how you feel, because in the middle of this tribulation, in the middle of this supernatural work of God that cannot be explained in any other way other than God is pouring out his wrath, these people, more and more people, are turning their back on that lifeline. So let's take a look at chapter 10, and I think we're going to see why God hits Paul's, because inside of chapter 10 and all the, well, the mysterious things that we're going to see here, I think ultimately what you're going to see is that God is hitting Paul's for a moment, and there's a reason he's doing it. Chapter 10, verse 1, then I saw another mighty angel. So as we've read the book of Revelation, John has had the experiences with these angels, mighty in power, mighty in strength, and they have spoken directly to John. But in chapter 10, what he sees here, well, he's not had an experience like what he's going to have here. He says, another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face shone like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. So John, if you remember, is told by Jesus to write down what he experiences. So, so what we have here in chapter 10, and I'll remind you again, is simply John describing for us what he saw. John is not making up a fable here. John is not using some kind of symbolism here to symbolize the fight between good and evil. He is telling us very forthrightly what he saw, and he's explaining it the very best way that he can. So this mighty angel ascends down to earth, and wrapped in a cloud, and he has legs that are like the pillars of fire. Now that's a very interesting imagery there. Just as we've seen in the book of Revelation, the, well, the, the connections of what's happening here with what happened in the Exodus. When the Israelite people were enslaved in Egyptian bondage, and God told Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you will let my people go. And he said that through Moses. And plague after plague after plague after plague kept coming. And what happened? The Pharaoh hardened his heart and would refuse to let the people go. And we see those plagues, and those plagues are very similar to what we see in the book of Revelation. Well, then eventually Pharaoh submits and allows the people to go. 
When they leave Egypt, do you remember what was leading them and guiding them? It was a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And that, and that miraculous intervention was leading the people, well, first to Mount Sinai, but eventually towards the promised land. Here we have an angel who is wrapped in a cloud and has legs like the pillars of fire. And I have to wonder if in this pause, God is saying, I am sending you, I am giving you a lifeline if you will just accept it, if you will just follow it. This, this angel is massive, verse 2. It says, he had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Now, I, I don't have... <laughs> I don't have a, a lot of imagination when it comes to this, trying to just imagine what, how big this angel is. But for some of the, you who are really into Marvel comics and all into the movies and that kind of thing, maybe you can kind of conceive of maybe something you've seen in a comic book or a movie of something this massive. But here's what John sees. John sees an angel so mighty, so powerful, so big, that he has one foot on the sea and one on land. And I, I would imagine that this angel is standing something like this, maybe one foot on a mountain and one on the sea. Massive. And he says that in the angel's left hand, the reason I say left hand, because in a minute he's going to raise his right hand to heaven, in his left hand is a little scroll. Now, the little scroll, little book, is little because I think the angel is so massive. This angel is so big, of course, the scroll, the book that is in his hand is small. And he, and he has the scroll, and by the way, this scroll is open. So the scroll, as we've said, these scrolls that often have seals, apparently the seals have been broken, and this scroll is unrolled to a degree. And it says, and he called out with a loud voice, like a lion roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, this angel is speaking. We don't know exactly what he's saying. John says that it was so loud, so powerful, and so frightening that it was like a, a lion roaring. I have read stories, maybe you've had the opportunity to go on a safari. Maybe one day I'd like to have the, the opportunity to do that. And I've heard people write or read what people have wrote about being on safari and maybe camping out at night in these camps that you can go to and hearing a lion roar in the middle of the night, how that it would absolutely just make you shake to the bone at the power of what's out in the wild in those African uh, lands. John says that this angel, when he speaks, it's like, well, the roar of a lion. But not only that, there's these thunders, these claps of thunder. There were seven of them, apparently in sequence. Seven claps of thunder. But then we find out as we read on that it was more than just a clap of thunder. He says, I was about to write. So in other words, in those claps of thunder, John hears seven messages. Now, it would make sense that John would write that down because what was John told to do? John said... Jesus told John, write down all that you experience, all that you see, all that you hear. So John is going to write down what he hears. But there's a voice in heaven that says, don't write. Don't write what you heard. In other words, do not write it down and, and do not write these things down that you have heard from the seven claps of thunder. Now I find it amazing. I found this many times. That when you come to a text like this where God says to John, don't write this down. In other words, we don't need to know this. In this moment, in this chapter, God does not need us knowing what was said during those seven claps of thunder. But what's amazing to me is how many commentators that I find who try to tell me what was said during the seven claps of thunder. Now, can we all just agree that no man knows what was said during those seven claps of thunder? Are we all in agreement on that? So therefore, if you pick up a commentary, you're reading something online and some guy or some woman is saying to you based on their PhD that they have and whatever, they're saying to you, oh, I can tell you what was said during the seven claps of thunder. Can we all agree they are lying through their teeth? Because God says right here, do not write it down. So guess what? I don't have to be worried about it. God says all that I need to know is right here between the covers of this book from Genesis to Revelation. And if God chooses not to tell me something, that's okay. That's okay. So don't write it down, John. Notice what happens next in verse 5. Now the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Okay, get this imagery. You've got this massive, massive, massive angel who has his foot on a mountain and his foot on the sea and now he raises his hand to heaven. 
Now, there's some imagery here that we need to unpack. Because happening in this imagery, you have this angel kind of symbolizing in these motions, foot on the sea, foot on land, and a hand raised to heaven. You have all three realms of the creation of God. Notice what happens. Look what he says. He says, he raised his hand to heaven, swore by him who lives forever and ever, look at this, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. So here you have this angel raising his right hand. In the left hand, he has a scroll. He has one foot on the sea, one foot on land. So in that moment, he is swearing an oath to God, the creator of where his foot is on the sea, on the land, and where his hand is raised. Oftentimes when we read in the New Testament, we'll read the idea of heavens, Right? Well, the heavens, when it's interpreted in the, in the New Testament, can interpret, be interpreted three ways. First of all, heaven can be interpreted within the context of where it's written, the verses you're reading. It can be interpreted to mean the sky. So we could have said this week that there was a Chinese spy balloon in the heavens, okay, just in the sky. So the Bible can refer to that as the heavens. But it can also refer to the heavens as far as the cosmos, the stars, where the planets are, our our, uh, our galaxy, that is also referred to as the heavens. And then there's a third way. Jesus talked about this third place in John 14. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. We refer to that also as heaven. This angel is raising his hand to the sky, to the cosmos, let us all know that God has created both the sea, the land, and all that we see. And he says, it's upon this God this eternal God, this God who never changes, that I am going to make an oath. What is happening in chapter 10 is very unique. First of all, we find nowhere where an angel ever does this. Second of all, when we look through the entire counsel of God's word, we find that the Bible is very clear to be careful with when you take an oath. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, be careful with taking oaths. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. But be careful when you take an oath. In, in Genesis 12, we find where God made an oath to Abraham. We know it to be the Abrahamic covenant. So here we have the angel making an oath to God. And notice what the oath is. There's two parts to it. He says in verse, um, let's back up to verse 6. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. So the first part of the oath that the angel makes, he says to God, there will be no more delays. And in fact, once this interlude is over and once the seventh trumpet sounds and the bold judges begin to fall, there in fact is no more interludes. There are no more pauses. God's judgment is going to be poured out and it's going to be poured out swiftly. When we get into the bold judgments, you're going to see them come with rapid succession. The angel is warning all of the earth to say there's going to be a time where God's pause button is no longer going to be pressed. There is going to be a time where his judgment is going to be felt in full force and full fury. You better grab on to the lifeline now. If you're drowning, you better reach out for the lifeline. The second part of the oath, get this. He says that not only there'll be no more delay, verse 7, but in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God will be fulfilled. So the first part is there'll be no delay. That's the oath. The second part of the oath is that all the mysteries of God are going to be completely and utterly fulfilled. What mysteries is he talking about? He's talking about those Old Testament prophets who even when they, the people of the day, the people of Israel heard what those Old Testament prophets would say, they even had a hard time understanding. And they would have a hard time with the visions that Ezekiel would have. But, but what this angel says and the oath that he takes is that all that was mysterious and what the Old Testament prophets said some thousand years earlier is all going to be fulfilled exactly the way God said that it would. Every T will be crossed. Every I will be dotted. No one will stand against it. It will come with the full force of God's sovereignty and promise. Verse 8. Then the voice that I heard, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, go take the scroll that is in the open, that is in the open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So John 
hears from God, hears from heaven, and he's told to approach this massive angel. And that in his left hand is a scroll, a book that is already open or unrolled. So, so John, reluctantly, I would imagine, goes over and, and, he, and he says to the angel, verse 9, give me the little scroll. And the angel looks at John, looks down at John as he hands him this little scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. Okay, can we all agree here that this is kind of an odd thing? Uh, who's ever been told to eat a book? I mean, that's kind of a strange thing. So the angel looks at John and says, John, here's the scroll. Now you eat that scroll. You, you eat, physically eat the papyrus of the scroll. You consume the scroll. And by the way, John, it's going to be sweet in your mouth, but it is going to be bitter in your stomach. The crazy thing is, is this has actually happened before. Ezekiel. That, again, that strange book of prophecy, Ezekiel chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Ezekiel the prophet is, is going to write the nation of Israel who's now in Babylonian captivity. And he's going to write both a, a, a judgment upon the nation to say, this is why you're in Babylonian captivity, but also to say to the people, there is future. Not only future for Israel to be released after 70 years, but there is an ultimate future where God is going to make all things that have been wrong, he's going to make them right. So Ezekiel in chapters 2 and 3 has a very similar experience. He's given a scroll, and he's told by God to eat the scroll. The difference is, is Ezekiel is told that it's just going to be sweet in his mouth. He's not told it's going to be bitter in his stomach, but John is. So John, John takes the scroll. He eats the scroll, and just as the angel said, is sweet in his mouth like honey. Now, up in the mountains from where I'm from, we have something called sourwood honey. And it is by far the best honey I've ever eaten. And there is nothing sweeter and nothing I enjoy more than some sourwood honey on a nice, big, and I don't know if y'all gonna follow me on this one or not, I may be speaking in tongues here, but a cat head biscuit. Anybody know what that is? A cat head biscuit is exactly what you think it is. It's the size of a cat's head. And with butter and honey on that thing, nothing better. And I just lost everybody in this room. Every, whenever y'all, one of y'all just went to lunch. Come back for just a moment. <laughs> Should have went too far with that illustration. So, honey in his mouth. So, John eats the scroll. What does that look like? I don't know what to tell you other than the fact that he took a buck and he began to eat it. Eat it and he ate all of it. Just as the angel told him to. And John would have known about the history with Ezekiel. He would have known that this is exactly the same thing happened with Ezekiel, but he's obedient, he eats the scroll. The question is, is what is this scroll? I mean, that's, that's a pretty good question. What, what is this scroll? Well, again, there's kind of two major opinions here. One group of people says, hey, this is a brand new word from God, a, a, a brand new revelation to John in this story, and, and this is part of what's going to be unveiled next. Okay, I, I agree. That's probably what we're going to see next with the rise of the Antichrist and his kingdom and all this getting ready to happen. But I think there's more happening here. I think the scroll in Revelation 10 is the same scroll that God handed to Jesus in chapter 5. Let me tell you why I, should, why I think that. Turn back to Revelation 1. Revelation 1, right at the very opening of this great book, we have a, a basically a progression that, that God reveals here through the hand of John. And actually, John is writing this down. I think we have here kind of the key that this scroll is the same scroll that Jesus broke the seals on that he received from the hand of God. Look at verse 1. Remember the revelation, revelation meaning the unveiling, the unveiling of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. John bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Go back to Revelation 10. Here's what I think is going on. I think that right here in chapter 10, you have the fulfillment of what John was saying and recording back in chapter 1. So you have the revelation of God, the unveiling of God, of, of his son, the beauty and glory and power of the king, but you also have the unveiling of the wrath of God being poured out upon the planet. So you have that unveiling. And that unveiling came from God to Jesus. Where did that happen? It happened in Revelation 5. 
where Jesus goes up on the throne, takes the scroll from the hand of God and begins to break the seals. What happens next? The wrath of God is poured out upon the planet. But then John said that that message, that unveiling was given to an angel, and then that angel gives it to John, and then John is to give that word to everyone. And here we are, 2,000 plus years later, reading it. So here's what I think. Again, you know, I, I think there's good reasons to think this might be something separate. It's fine. I'm just telling you where I came down on it. Where I came down on it, this is the same scroll. And the other reason I think is notice that in the hand of the angel, get this, the scroll is already open. Why is it already open? Because Jesus has broken those seals and opened that scroll. And now John has the responsibility to eat this message. John has the responsibility to consume this full message, to internalize it. And look at verse 11. Here's why. This message that he has now eaten and taken into his stomach. He says, and I was told, you must again prophesy. John is told that this message that he has now consumed and internalized is not a message that should end with him. It is a message that must be given away. It must be proclaimed. It must be a message that is passed on. So John, here's what you're going to do. You're going to consume this message. You're going to internalize it. It's going to change you. It's going to be sweet in your mouth, but bitter in your stomach. And then you're to take that message, both the sweetness of it and the bitterness of it, and you are to proclaim it, get this, to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So I think this scroll is none other than the one we see in chapter Five. But at this point, we have to ask a question. Okay, with all of this imagery, with this mighty angel and, and his oath to God and the fact that all of this is going to unravel rather quickly, what does that mean for us here in 2023 on a cold, rainy morning in January? I'm sorry, February. I'm a month behind. I think that what God is saying by hitting this pause, this interlude, He's reminding us yet again of his grace, and he's reminding us yet again that there's a lifeline extended to all who are drowning even now. I, I think that what he would like us to focus in on is this scroll, this word of God that was internalized by John, that John took the word, he internalized it, and then he proclaimed it. So I think what Jesus would have us to wrestle with here is how important is the words of God in your life? Now, when I say that, I mean more than what's happening right now, more than you having to put up with me for 35, 40 minutes this morning. I'm talking about on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning. How important is the Word of God, God in the life of your family and in your daily living, Sunday to Sunday? Let me ask you a question. Maybe this is a question you haven't wrestled with, but I think based on what we see here, that John is to take up the book, that we are to take up the book. doesn't matter to me if you're flipping pages or you're scrolling on your phone, because I can't imagine that anybody will be on Facebook right now. You'd have to be scrolling in your Bible, right? You're scrolling on your app. Taking the book up, just like John did. Here's the question. As a follower of Jesus, if we reject to read and study the Bible on a regular basis, is that a sin? Is that disobedience? Is that, is that failing in our walk with Christ? Does, does God put a high priority on consuming, ingesting his word? Well, I'm going to let Jesus answer that question. Turn back to John chapter 17. You'll recognize that chapter. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prayed right before being arrested and eventually crucified. This, John 17, by the way, this is the Lord's Prayer. It's not Matthew 6. That's the model prayer. The Lord's Prayer, the prayer that he prayed that we have documented right here in chapter 17, that's the Lord's Prayer. And there's one single verse that I want to bring your attention to about how Jesus thought about the importance of God's Word and consuming it. Look at verse 17. Jesus is speaking to the 11. Now, in this prayer, he's going to pray for the 11, but then he's going to pray for all disciples everywhere. Everyone that would ever put, his, put their faith in Jesus and follow him, this prayer he prayed for you. Look at, verse, look at verse 17. He says, sanctify them. 
Now, sanctification is this big fancy word that simply means to be set apart for service. So, so Jesus says in this prayer, as he's praying to God the Father, he says, my people who follow me, set them aside. Specifically in this verse, he's talking about the 11. He says, set them apart, set them apart for my service, set them apart for the Great Commission, set them apart to be the church of Jesus Christ. Set them apart and empower them. How does that happen? Well, he tells us, sanctify them in the truth. The only truth that matters today is God's truth. The only truth that is truth is God's truth. And you hold it in your hands. All down through history and time, humanity's been asking the same questions over and over and over again. Every generation, no matter how far back you go, they ask the same exact life questions. And those answers are found none other than the unchanging, inspired, authoritative Word of God from Genesis to Revelation. He says, set them apart for my work in the truth. Your word is truth. So it sounds to me like Jesus is saying that the word of God, at the time he's praying that prayer would have been the Old Testament, but of course it includes the inspired canon of scripture. He's saying this, that if you want to follow him, be set apart in his service, then there's no way to be sanctified. There's no way to be in the service of the king without consuming the truth. Sounds to me like Jesus thought that that reading and contemplating and consuming and internalizing God's Word is part of what it means to follow Jesus. You see, I struggle with the whole idea that a person would say, I love Jesus, but I haven't cracked His Word since last Sunday. I struggle with that. You know why? Because to love Jesus is to love His words. To love God is to love the whole counsel of his word. And if there's something missing in the inside of you as a love for his word, there's something there that needs to be explored. There's something there that we need to pause and ask a question. Well, maybe you say, okay, here's the reason I'm not in God's word. Well, I just think it's boring. I mean, let's be honest, folks. Let's just be honest. Let's be open about it. There have been times you've been reading God's word that you just think it's boring and you stopped reading. Well, I, I think the real problem there is not that the Bible is boring. I think the real problem is, is that you're looking for entertainment somewhere else. That at the end of the day, Netflix is more important than God's Word. That another four hours on a video game. Am I going there? Yeah, let's go there. Another four hours on a video game is more important than the words of your Creator. That by the way, men and women have died all down through history to make sure we have an English copy of this. That men and women have died, been burned to death. God saw fit that you would have multiple copies, multiple avenues. And yet, well, it's just not, it's just not good as, as Netflix or Amazon Prime. Or you may say, I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time for that. Well, if if you're saying you don't have time to read God's Word, I would say you have a priority problem. There's a problem with your priorities. And if you look at those list of priorities, there's probably two, three, four, five things that you've put ahead of God's Word. Yet at the same time, you're saying that I love Jesus and and I'm one of His followers and and, and I'm about the mission that He's given me. There's no way that you can say that you're about the mission of Jesus Christ and be separated from the very words that He's given you to follow. It just doesn't work. John was told, John, go take take up the book. Take it up. Take it up and ingest it. Take it inside of you. In other words, internalize it. Let it it be be part of you. Look, if if your journey in church, in small group, if your journey is just to get smarter about the facts of the Bible, you're missing the point. The purpose of God's Word is to change you from the inside out. Look, you can gain all the knowledge about Moses parting the Red Sea and about all the imagery in the book of Revelation, but if it does not change your life, if you're not nice to the person in the drive-thru, then what is the point, folks? Jesus said, may my truth set you apart. Sanctify you. Secondly, John is told to take up the Bible, take up the Scripture, take up the Word, and internalize it. 
Second, when John begins to eat it, he finds it sweet in his mouth. I love this imagery. There, there are times when, when I'm reading God's word and it's just sweet, man. I'm telling you, it's just sweet. When I, when I begin to read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and when everyone else was bowing the knee and that great sea of people are in front of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, they look out there and who do we find? We find these Hebrew boys saying, we ain't bowing no knee. We have one God and only him do we serve. That's sweet to me. It's sweet to me that, that these men would have that kind of courage in that moment. It's sweet to me in that moment when Esther, for such a time as this, has been put in a position by the providence of God to save her people. And she's at that moment where she's trying to decide, hey, am I going to do this? It's going to be a big risk. Or, or am I going to just simply take the easy route? And it's sweet to me to see how Esther steps forward and fulfills the destiny that God had for her and for his people. It's, it's sweet to me when I, when I have the opportunity to run with John and Peter to the empty tomb. And I get to run with them. And I get to imagine in my mind's eye what it was like in all of their brokenness and all that they've seen, Peter denying John at the cross, seeing the, the limp body of Jesus being taken down from the cross, the brokenness that they have, Judas betraying, all of that in that moment has all been reversed because in that moment they run to a tomb and that stone has been pulled away and they realize, you know, Jesus said this would happen. The sweetness of that moment. The sweetness of the moment when, when Paul on the Damascus Road falls on his face before his king and can no longer kick against the goads and surrenders. The, the sweetness of the mercies of God that are fresh and new every morning, that no matter how much of a mess I made up, that I made the previous 24 hours, that that mercy is fresh and new right in the moment I need it, and that in that moment when God forgives me, he casts my sin as far as the east is to the west. Is that sweet to you? That God will never bring up ever again the failures that I've made. And folks, I've made a laundry list long of them, but God will never bring them up. That is sweet to me. It's sweet in my mouth to even consider it. It is, it is sweet to me that, that God allows me to serve in his great kingdom work. He doesn't need me. Listen. God could take me out of this world tomorrow. He could take me out today, just like that. He doesn't need me, but he allows me to serve you folks. He allows me to be part of this work that he's doing. That's sweet. There's a sweetness to God's word. There's a sweetness to the gospel, the gospel that sets us free. There's a sweetness to getting into God's word. There is so much to be mined from these pages. Why in the world would you ever want to put anything ahead of it? Why would this not be a priority in your life? The questions you're wrestling with, the hurts that you're carrying with you for the last 20 years of your life, the unforgiveness that you're wrestling with, all of that, all of that, God is throwing a lifeline to you and is connected right here to the pages of his word, his love letter to you. But just as sweet as his word is, it's also bitter. John consumes it sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his gut how it is that there are people sitting in this room and watching online, there were people sitting in this room at first service who've rejected the gospel over and over and over and over again. And my fear for them and the bitterness in my gut that I feel when I pray for them is that now they have got religion. They've got a Baptist name rather than the name of Christ. They have, they have gotten accustomed, inoculated to the gospel because of the practice of religion. So they're going through their life trying to check the boxes, thinking that somehow that brings the favor of God, while at the same time missing, walking right by the very lifeline that God has thrown out to them, and they are sinking in their sins and can't see it. The bitterness of when I walk with John to that cross the bitterness of, of Peter after walking with Jesus for three plus years, the bitterness of him cursing and denying Christ. I've done the same. The, the bitterness of, of Judas 
Judas, who, who was right there to see Lazarus res, uh, resurrected from the tomb, sees the power that Jesus has and yet stabs Jesus in the back, not literally, but figuratively, sells him out. How can he do it? Well, folks, I've done the same thing. Not only have I been stabbed in the back by Judas, but I have been Judas. Bitterness. The bitterness of the Romans gambling for the only cloth that Jesus had. The only thing he owned. The death of John the Baptist, the, the stoning to death of Stephen. I could go on and on. But there is yet a sweetness in God's word, the beauty and the grace of God's word, but there is a bitterness to it. There is a hardship. Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, then take up this implement of death called a cross and follow me. That's what it means. Jesus would say, you've got to forsake your mother and your father, your brother and your sister. You've got to love me more than you love them. That's hard. What we see in this text in, in Revelation 10 is John taking up the word, consuming the word, internalizing the word, sweet in his mouth but bitter in his stomach. But John doesn't have the option to pick what parts he wants to proclaim. John is going to be told, go prophesy now. John, go tell everyone. Go tell what you've learned. Go tell what you've, what's been revealed to you. Go, go share what you've taken in. Church, you've been taken in a lot, maybe through small groups. You take in a lot, maybe, hopefully, on Sunday mornings. Hopefully, you get something out of this. But what you're getting out of it is to be given away to that cubicle maid who doesn't know Jesus, to that best friend who's going through a divorce to that neighbor across the street who just lost a loved one. To take what you've been given and give it away. That is the Great Commission. But not only that, we don't get to pick which parts we give away. There are times where it's the sweetness of God's word that a person needs here. It's the, it's the sweetness of his grace, the sweetness of his love, the sweetness that yes, your sins can be forgiven, but then there are other times that it's better. That yes, you can't keep that in your life and follow Jesus. Yes, that is a sin. Yes, that brings destruction into your life. Yes, that is wrong. Yes, it will kill you. It will destroy you. Yes, you must lay everything down to follow Jesus Christ. You can't have your addictions and Jesus. You can't have your adultery and Jesus. You can't have your pornography and Jesus. That's bitter to a lot of folks. And it's at that point... It's at that point, a lot of folks say, you know what, I'm good just here drowning. I'll wait for the next rope. As the world, as the world continues to run down this path of disobedience and evil, just as Paul told Timothy in his letter to Timothy, he says, Timothy, in the last days, people will become lovers of themselves. They'll become arrogant. They'll be hateful. They will do things that are not only ungodly, but they won't even blush when they do it. So, so Paul says, and Jesus said in the Gospels, that as time moves forward, the world is going to continue to run down this path of disobedience, darkness, and evil. And here's, here's what we're seeing now. We're seeing the world turn right around and look at the church and say, hey, you guys need to follow us. So let's sit down, let's negotiate. Let's see if we can come up with some way that you guys can have your church but not say to the world anything bitter or harsh. And guess what? There are denominations all across this land who are saying, you know what, you're right. We need to follow you guys. We need to compromise. We, we need to give up on the historical doctrines of the Christian faith clearly described in the authority of God's word. We need to abandon those things so that we can be accepted by the culture. And the culture is saying, yes, that's what you need to do. And for those of you who don't do it, it's going to get extremely hard for you to stick by your convictions. Are any of y'all feeling that right now? Are you feeling it? Sticking by your convictions at your job? So we don't have the opportunity just to proclaim what is sweet and leave out what is bitter. If our world is drowning, if your friend is drowning, if your family member is drowning, then what you have the responsibility to do 
is to consume God's word, let it change who you are, and then you go out and you throw that lifeline out to as many people as you can, and whether they grab onto it or not is between them and the Lord, but you be faithful to the good news that you've heard. Don't let the good news stop with you, because there are people drowning. And regardless of how they respond, regardless of what they say, regardless of if they get angry or not, your responsibility as a follower of Jesus is to take up the book, ingest it, take it inside of you, let it change who you are, both the sweet and the bitter, and you go out and prophesy about the goodness and the grace of God, and yes, the judgment that is coming. I'm going to ask for our worship team to come out and do a little something different today than what I normally do. I'm going to ask you to stand as we prepare to worship and close. I'm going to look you right in the eye this morning. Go ahead and stand. I'm going to look you right in the eye this morning because there's something you need to know. And it's a lifeline that I need to throw to you. Because when God called me into ministry, one of the facets of this is to make sure that I throw as many lifelines as I can. So instead of bowing our heads and me telling you about what the gospel is, I'm going to look you eyeball to eyeball. Because I believe there's some people in this room who are drowning. I believe there's some watching online this morning that are drowning. How awful would it be for the robe to lay right next to their hand and for them to continue to drown? You see, there's coming a day. It may be your death that you have no idea when it's coming. The Bible says our days are measured out. Either by death or by the coming of Jesus, there is a day coming where you will be held accountable for all that you've done. And if you meet that day without having Jesus in your life, without grabbing onto this lifeline that I'm about to throw to you, if you come to that day without this, you make no mistake about it, the bitterness of all that the Bible says is a place called hell. It's an eternal fire that you will spend all eternity in with no hope. It is not a party. It is not a bandstand where everybody's having a, a, an eternal party. It is a place of eternal suffering that you will never get any relief from. That is the bitterness of what the scriptures say. That is the truth. So the lifeline that's going to be thrown out to you is this. You may, have got, you may have gotten all the religion you can handle and it hasn't made a bit of difference in your life. You may, you may have, you may can quote the verses, sing the songs, you may even raise your hand, but deep down inside, you know that all you have is religion. You don't have Jesus in your life. You've heard about him your whole life, but you've never bowed the knee and surrendered to him. Well, I'm about to throw you a lifeline. I'm gonna ask you to abandon religion. Abandon it completely. What I'm going to ask you to do is put your faith in Jesus. What does that look like? Well, to believe that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says that he is, that he died on a cross publicly, not because he sinned, but because you did and because I did. And that, and that by putting faith in him is grabbing onto that rope to say, you know what? I believe that Jesus died in my place and I believe that they put a lifeless body in a tomb and it goes against all human reason, but I don't care about human reason, that Jesus Christ walked out of that grave alive and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father today. Is that where your faith is this morning? A part of this is grabbing on to that reality, but the other part is the repentance, letting go. Letting go of the gods that you have in your life, whether they be addictions, whether they be power or ego or pride, letting go of your plans, letting go of what the world says is right. And, and, and at that time, what you're doing is you're, you're turning your heart away. You're turning your heart away from the world and towards Jesus Christ. And you're grabbing with the other hand to say that not only do I believe that you died and rose for me, but I forsake all others and I follow you. Don't know what that means? I'll figure that out. You'll teach, you'll teach me, you'll show me. But right now in this moment, I forsake all others. And I follow you. Folks, that's the lifeline. And let me add, it's the only one. There is no other. So what say you? Going to continue to drown? That's a choice that you're making. God says, come, all who will. All who are lost, all who are weary, come, and I'll give you rest. I would imagine that some of you who've put your faith in Jesus, you're, when I was talking about the word a little while ago, you began to get a little anxious about that. The reality is, is that if you're following Jesus, the only way you're gonna know how to follow him is here. I'm here to help you with that. If you're struggling with that, I'll sit down, we'll sp spend as many hours as you want getting into this word, helping you to understand it. But the reality is, a follower of Jesus is gonna be about the word of God. I don't, I don't know how to, break that down anymore. 
the reality is it starts here. Father in heaven, as I look in the eyes of the people here, Lord, there are many people here who have been faithful to you for a long time, and I'm thankful for them. But my eyes met some people this morning that I, I wonder if they're right with you. I wonder, and only you and them know, that the lifeline yet again is being thrown out. May they reach for it by faith. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.